0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, lesson, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Your Brain on Facts back catalogue. I'm your host, Moxie LaBouche. A little bit of context before the episode begins. For these early episodes, I was still learning to edit the audio. Some of them sound bad because I didn't edit enough, and then some sound worse because I edited too much. Please take the audio quality with a grain of salt and understand that it was Growing Pains. And now, our feature presentation. Do you remember playing the telephone game as a child? A story goes from person to person, and as it does, it changes and morphs, becoming something new that resembles the original, only slightly to not at all. Imagine if at the end of the game, someone wrote that new version down, establishing it as canon, and everyone else writing books on that topic copied it. History is a bit like that. Take, for example, George Washington's youthful proclamation on the lumberjacking of his father's cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie, I did cut it with my hatchet. It's one of the first presidential facts American children learn in elementary school. The trouble is, the story is a complete fabrication. Along with other tales of dubious origin, it was the brainchild of author Mason Locke Weems to sell more copies of his book as the nation mourned Washington's passing. The cherry tree anecdote wasn't even added until the fifth edition of the book. Decades later, college professor and minister William Holmes McGuffey composed a series of grammar school textbooks that recast the anecdote as a children's story. His books, known as McGuffey Readers, remained in print for nearly a hundred years and sold over 120 million copies. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The rest of the world arguably correctly, thinks of American history as a recent invention. But enough years have passed for true accounts to be obscured or erased. Even before her story got the Disney treatment, most people knew of the brave young Native girl defying her father to save the life of John Smith. There are just a few problems with the version we're all familiar with. To begin with, her actual name was Amanut. Pocahontas was a nickname, which meant something like mischievous child, so she's effectively been memorialized as Little Scamp. Rather than the tall teenager from the cartoon movie, real-life Pocahontas was around 11 when John Smith arrived in Virginia in 1607. The House of Mouse isn't wholly to blame here. It is believed to be Smith's own account, written many years later, that gave the world the tale of the girl throwing herself across his neck to save him from beheading, which he may have borrowed from a popular Scottish ballad. Young Baikon tells the story of a hero who is thrown into a dungeon in a faraway land. His captor's daughter frees him, and he pledges to marry her. On returning home, however, he's forced to marry someone else. The girl who freed him arrives in time to stop the wedding, and they live happily ever after. While Pocahontas and Smith did spend time together and learn from one another, there are no contemporary accounts to indicate that they had a romantic relationship, nor should the listener hope for one, considering he was twenty-eight at the time. Those who know of her adult life think of Pocahontas living in England and being something of a celebrity before succumbing to the filth of London air. In 1613, English captain Samuel Argall kidnapped her and held her hostage. She was granted her freedom only after converting to Christianity and marrying John Rolfe, a union that ushered in an era of peace between the Algonquin and the English that would last less than a decade. Stories passed down by Virginia's Native Americans, along with one English source, maintain that Pocahontas was already married prior to the abduction. She fell ill and died in March of 1617, in the town of Gravesend, just after starting out on the voyage home. Few names are as synonymous with treason for Americans as Benedict Arnold, the turncoat who helped the Redcoats. He made contact with spies using his wife's pro-loyalist friends, told the British about the locations of rebel troops and supplies took command of the fort at West Point for the Revolution, but secretly did everything he could to cripple it, then sold the fort's weaknesses to the British. Later, he led 1,600 redcoats and loyalists on a devastating series of raids across Virginia and a fierce assault on the port of New London, Connecticut, which he burned to the ground. Now imagine if all of that energy had been spent to help the Revolution. It very nearly was. Arnold was instrumental in the taking of Fort Ticonderoga in 1775, as well as fierce defenses of Lake Champlain and the Battle of Ridgefield in 1777. He was twice wounded, taking a bullet to the leg and being crushed under a horse in the climactic Battle of Saratoga. Being bedridden gave him time to reflect on how his accomplishment at Ticonderoga was lost in a political battle over who would take credit for the victory. The winner was Co-Commander Ethan Allen. And his historic efforts at Lake Champlain and Saratoga went unrecognized since the battles were considered defeats. The Continental Congress passed Arnold over for promotion, giving it to a junior officer instead. Though Arnold would eventually be promoted, Congress wouldn't give him seniority, meaning he was still subordinate to junior officers. Arnold then faced a smear campaign by members of the Continental Congress. As military governor of Philadelphia, Arnold struck shady deals in which he profited from supplying provisions to the rebelling army. When local merchants and politicians protested his corrupt dealings, Arnold demanded a court-martial to clear his name. He was cleared of all but two minor charges, but these still drew a rather nasty reprimand. Not long afterward, Accountants of the Continental Congress calculated that, after the expenses for his northern campaigns were tallied up, Arnold owed them £1,000. That was more or less when Benedict Arnold turned. If it's any consolation, he wasn't liked much better by the British. He would be locked out of important decisions by the officer elite, lost a great deal of money in bad business deals, and had a string of alarming run-ins, including dueling with a Member of Parliament and being burned in effigy. Moving from high school history to French 1, those who did well in the course remember the Bastille and its eponymous day. For the rest of us, who, like this reporter, either ignored or immediately disregarded the course material, the Bastille was an enormous, foreboding prison, a castle of torture and torment which helped to stoke the fire in the hearts of the revolutionaries who liberated it on the Quatorze de Juillet, or the 14th of July, 1789. The event quickly became a symbol of the French Revolution, which led to the toppling of the absolute monarchy. So fearsome was its reputation that the Bastille has held a place in the popular imagination for centuries, featuring in Alexandre Dumont's Three Musketeers novels and Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. What teachers failed to relate to students, and probably didn't know themselves, was that the grand total of prisoners set free by the mob of over 1,000 angry Parisians that day was seven. One minivan's worth of people were incarcerated in the Bastille in its final hours. Most of those imprisoned therein were political prisoners, publishers of offensive works, or persons detained on royal lettres de cachet rather than common criminals. Lettres de cachet were essentially royal warrants, which would be executed without trial, and could even be requested by noble families to rid themselves of troublesome relatives. Though these were a favored tool of Louis XIV, the so-called Sun King, to detain his enemies, along with anyone who generally irritated him, they saw less and less use throughout the years of his successor's reign, which brought on the proportionate dwindling of the Bastille's population. Life on the inside hadn't been all that tough, either. If you think the HBO series Oz depicted an unrealistic portrayal of prison life, the propaganda of treatment in the Bastille was equally unrealistic. Although contemporary writers and brain boxes of the day, such as Voltaire, who enjoyed two visits in the Bastille, wrote of torment, squalor, and indignity. The handful of prisoners in the enormous structure lived quite comfortably. Far from a diet of bread and water, one prisoner itemized his first meal in the joint as pea soup garnished with lettuce, well-simmered and appetizing to look at, with a quarter of fowl to follow. In one dish there was a juicy beefsteak, with plenty of gravy and a sprinkling of parsley. In another, a quarter of forcemeat pie, well-stocked with sweetbreads, coxcomb, asparagus, mushrooms, and truffles. And a third, a ragout of sheep's tongue the whole excellently cooked. For dessert, a biscuit and two pippins. This meal was brought to him by his servant, who insisted on pouring his wine. Many cells featured furnishings from the prisoners' homes, including cases full of books, making their jail cells superior in comfort to the average peasant's home. Prisoners were allowed to move about the grounds freely. Conjugal visits were an option, as was having servants. Some prisoners were even allowed to spend the day in town. Although the Bastille had originally been constructed as a military garrison, later to be used as the National Treasury and even hotel for visiting dignitaries, it saw only a skeleton staff during its operation as a prison. When the uprisen citizens captured the Bastille, they did find some gunpowder, but absent were the implements of torture and dank, rat-infested dungeons they had been told it contained. The scene they found was so innocuous, they had to start making things up. They constructed such propaganda as a decorative suit of armor being a torture device to render prisoners immobile, and a piece of a printing press was paraded through the streets as a supposed implement of torture. And what of the prisoners for whom the terrors brought freedom? Four were actual criminals, who it may be assumed were back at their old tricks as soon as the dust settled. Two were lunatics, both arrested for treason, one of whom alternately thought he was Julius Caesar and God. The seventh prisoner was a young nobleman deposited there under Lettre de Cachet by his own family for sexual deviancy. If the mention of Alexandre Dumas' novels made the listener wonder at the historical veracity of The Man in the Iron Mask, Yes, he was an actual prisoner at the Bastille. Theories still swirl as to the identity of this man who spent 34 years incarcerated in the steel-helm and stone fortress. One theory holds that he was a lonely valet implicated in a political scandal, another that he was a debauched nobleman, a failed assassin, or even the twin brother of Louis XIV. The two most commonly speculated identities are that of Ercole Mathieu, and Eustace Doge. Mattiol was an Italian count who was abducted and jailed after he tried to double-cross Louis Fourteenth during political negotiations in the late 1670s. He was a long-time prisoner, and his name is similar to Marchioli, the alias under which the man in the mask was buried. Even more convincing is that Louis XV and sixteenth both supposedly said that the mask was an Italian nobleman. The Matthiol theory is undermined by his death, however, which likely occurred in 1694, several years too early for him to be the masked prisoner. This leads many to point to the enigmatic Eustace Dauger. His 1669 arrest warrant included a letter from a royal minister instructing jailers to restrict his contact with others and to threaten him with death if he speaks one word except about his actual needs. Dogey was frequently shepherded between several prisons, and once was transported in a covered chair so that passers-by would not see his face. Whatever his true identity, it is unlikely he looked much like Leonardo DiCaprio. The Bastille made news as recently as December 2017. It had been the literary birthplace of 120 Days of Sodom, penned by prisoner Donatien Alphonse Francois. Known more widely by his aristocratic title and nom de plume, the Marquis de Sade. Described at best as a masterpiece of profane imagination, and at worst as some of the foulest, cruelest pornography ever written, and described by de Sade himself as the most impure tale that has ever been told since our world began, it was written in secret, in cramped and tiny script, on a thirty-nine-foot scroll pieced together from smaller bits of parchment. He hid this in a copper tube in a wall crevice, where it was overlooked by both looting revolutionaries and those sent by de Sade specifically to retrieve it. It was eventually found, and the original manuscript made the rounds of rich collectors, before ultimately finding its way into the custody of the disgraced and defunct French investment firm Astrophil. One hundred twenty days of Sodom, along with over three hundred other treasures in their collection were set to be sold at auction in an attempt to recoup some of the one billion dollars lost by their investors. However, one day before the sale, the French government ordered the manuscript to be removed from the auction. It, along with André Breton's Surrealist Manifesto, had been declared a national treasure and their export from France outlawed. In addition to the printed versions, there is a film but this reporter will not be held responsible if the listener seeks out either one. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Creative debauchery was the hallmark of many Roman emperors, which is why they make for such good reading. Emperor Nero was no exception. While history records his having killed his mother, Agrippina, after a number of failed attempts, including poison and collapsing boats, marrying a male slave, and participating in the Olympics, in which he won every event, the act most closely associated with his name involves a great city engulfed in flames and a fiddle. The claim that Nero fiddled while Rome burned could not literally be true as the first stringed instrument resembling a fiddle of any kind was not invented for another 1,500 years. But did Nero figuratively fiddle around in the face of catastrophe? In the year 64 CE, the highly advanced, and apparently highly flammable, metropolitan center of Rome was burning. Early reports of the fire failed to rouse Nero's concern, as he trusted the fire would be contained. Dry Mediterranean winds quickly spread the conflagration to the Circus Maximus, which was constructed of poor-quality wood that presented as a ready and enormous source of kindling. The contents of nearby shops and warehouses fed the flames, and the fire grew quickly and geometrically. Fire recognizes no class. Peasant and patrician houses burned the same. As if the fire were not dangerous enough, Many people were trampled to death in the streets by panic-stricken crowds fleeing for safety. Records are scarce, and it's hard to know with certainty what happened. One side holds that Nero ordered the fires set, as he would later use the now barren ground to build his golden palace and its adjacent pleasure gardens. Nero himself blamed the then-obscure sect, the Christians, many of whom would later be arrested and executed. When a third singed messenger reached Nero 35 miles away in Antium, he and his men rode back to Rome. The air was full of smoke and the smell of burnt flesh. Nero ordered his men to begin helping immediately. Some accounts hold that Nero himself assisted the injured, even entering a burning building to help rescue a family. The fire raged for nearly a week. The emperor opened his imperial gardens to house the refugees and ordered grain imported from neighboring cities to feed the homeless. Historian Tacticus wrote that Nero sang a song about the destruction of Troy while Rome burned, but himself admitted there were no witnesses to this event. Nero did love music and favored a lyre-like instrument called cythera. However, no evidence exists that he played a cithara or any other instrument during the week-long blaze. It was easy for the Roman people to believe the rumors of the emperor's callous actions while they lost everything. His vices and caprices drained the Roman treasury, and he was behind the murders of his mother, brother, and wife. But of this offense specifically, Nero seems to be innocent. Jumping back a bit, The listener may have assumed that the accused arsonist Christians were put to death by being sent to lions in the arena. The short answer here could be, it wasn't only Christians, and it wasn't only lions. The punishment of Roman Christians in the first three centuries CE was largely haphazard and not directed by one specific imperial policy. Cruel deaths were not reserved for Christians. Condemnation to the beasts was a popular punishment for criminals of any type, because it simultaneously maximized the suffering of the condemned, and thus the entertainment value for the crowd. The punishments meted out to Christians who openly admitted their religion and refused to make sacrifices to Roman gods, which would have resulted in a pardon, varied greatly. In the first century, Christians, including the Apostle Paul, were executed by beheading. In the second century, this relatively merciful death was viewed as a privilege only for higher-ranking citizens. The lesser sorts were subject to more violent punishments, including crucifixion, burning to death, and being attacked by beasts, including crocodiles, leopards, and boars, among others. The idea of lions as the exclusive means of execution for Christians has been fixed in the public consciousness through various paintings and feature films like 1959's Quo Vadis. As with horned helmets on Vikings and pilgrims in black clothes with shiny hat buckles, It is artists more than historians who have determined how most of us remember this. If you ask the average person what Marie Antoinette said, they will invariably spew, Let them eat cake. This is why the listener would do well to avoid talking to average people. Just as with the torture chambers of the Bastille, the young queen's words are a complete fabrication engineered by rabble-rousers in the rebelling working class. There is no evidence to substantiate that when someone pointed out to the young queen that the peasants had no bread, she cluelessly replied that they should eat cake instead. There is, however, a great deal more evidence pertaining to the things being said about Antoinette. Austrian Princess Marie was only fourteen years old when she was taken to France to marry fifteen-year-old future king Louis-Auguste, a union that solidified the alliance between the two nations. The people of France were initially quite taken with her. A crowd so large and excited gathered at her first public appearance that at least thirty people were crushed or trampled. She set standards in clothing and hair fashion, including hairstyles rising a full metre from the head, one of which was large and lavish enough to feature a replica warship to commemorate a victory over the British Navy. With a young person's energy and all the money she could spend, Marie Antoinette commissioned the construction of Le Petit Hameau on the palace grounds, a pretend village with lakes, gardens, cottages, mills, and a farmhouse. The Queen and her ladies-in-waiting dressed up as peasants to play milkmaids and shepherdesses. This frivolity did not sit well with the actual peasants, many of whom struggled daily to ward off starvation, and earned her the nickname Madame Deficit. Her wigs were powdered with flour while people could not eat. Like other royals, she did not have her shoes cleaned after walking around the toiletless palace of Versailles. They would simply replace their shoes every few days, or even daily. The press of the day called her L'Ostrechène, a spelling that combines the French words for Austrian and bitch. Just as tabloid journalists in current times serve the salivating masses, rumors of infidelity, homosexuality, drug use, and other indiscretions, the propagandists of the 16th century liked to tell naughty little yarns about the Queen and her faithful dog, the strangest of which was written from the dog's point of view. As if the people didn't feel they had enough reason to hate Marie... A revolutionary tribunal tried the former queen on crimes against the French Republic that included high treason, sexual promiscuity, and incestuous relations with her son, Louis Charles, who was forced to testify that his mother had molested him. As likely as not, the cake-eating anecdote had its origins in the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, fifteen years before Marie Antoinette was even born. I recalled the thoughtless remark of the great princess, he wrote who, when she was told the peasants had no bread, replied, Let them eat cake. This phrase, used to encapsulate the out-of-touch and indifferent royals, described Marie-Theresa, the Spanish princess who married King Louis XIV in 1660. The remark was also ascribed to two aunts of Louis XVI before it was apocryphally tied to Marie-Antoinette. Marie-Antoinette was most certainly a dilettante, but she was also a lady to the end. Her last recorded words were, Pardon, monsieur, je ne l'ai pas fait express. Excuse me, sir, I did not mean to do it, said to her own executioner when she accidentally stepped on his toes on the way to the guillotine. Now that's class. A quick aside on another queen, or rather an empress, Catherine the Great of Russia. This reporter would like to make it explicitly clear that the empress who defeated the Ottomans, expanded the empire, introduced sweeping education reform, particularly for women, and restructured the government to better serve the people, did not die while or from having sex with a horse. She had a stroke at the age of 67 while going to the water closet one morning, and slipped away three days later. That being said, Catherine the Great did enjoy sex, and being empress meant she had greater freedom with her body than most women of her time. She had a long series of what were essentially male mistresses, who would receive lavish gifts, including titles and estates, during their relationship. She even had a specific attendant whose job it was to test the men's sexual prowess, after they'd been examined for venereal disease by a British doctor she kept on staff. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Once a story gets established, once it's become deeply rooted, it can be hard to shift it. History is written by the winners, and often filtered through the minds of people who want to sell books. Accounts become colored by agendas. It's not unhealthy to be skeptical of even reputable sources, as long as that skepticism leads you to dig deeper into the stories you thought you knew. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.